Hello, my name is Franco, and I'm the editor here at PropMoto. Thanks for listening to this podcast about affordable housing. This is just one episode in a series where I interview people working to make housing more affordable, to understand why affordable housing is not only one of the most important things that the property industry should be addressing, but how it is one of the biggest opportunities as well. Thanks for listening. In my experience, everyone in real estate is a bit of an armchair urban planner. Drive around any town with a broker and they will tell you everything about every new development and remodel because, well, because it's kind of their job. One of the most speculative and profitable skills of any property professional is trying to understand the character of a neighborhood, how to adapt to it, and how to possibly change it. The line between investor and urbanist gets even thinner in the affordable housing segment. Many people working in affordable housing even come from the policy side. I talked to one of those very people. Uh, I'm David Court. Uh, I am currently working for uh, BHB, or a uh, urban planning, engineering, and design firm, consulting firm. Uh, and I, am, I serve as the Northeast Regional Real Estate Market Leader uh, on behalf of the firm. David has been involved in some really great affordable housing projects but he started out working as an economic developer. Those are the people at the city tasked with trying to find the best way to improve neighborhoods, and the ones who often act as a liaison between public and private interests. I worked for the New York City Economic Development Corporation for 10 years, um, working on all different types of projects, everything from waterfront uh, redevelopment projects, uh, waterfront uh, open space projects, to um, mixed income projects, mixed use projects all across the five boroughs. Um, and, um, and then, and some of those projects involved affordable housing and mixed income housing, which I um, always thought was a critical component um, of any project that the city would, would be sponsoring. Um, and then after doing that for, for some time and, and got to work on some super exciting projects um, in particular, one in particular um, that I got to lead when I was at EDC was the what was then called the Seward Park redevelopment, now known as Essex Crossing on the Lower East Side of New York, um, which really um, I think was uh, was seen as a great success story in terms of community engagement and really ensuring that what the community saw as priority was was really baked into what the city would require uh, in the RFP and is ultimately built and almost complete completely built today in terms of 50% affordable. 100 senior set-aside units, 50% market rate, a new public market, um, medical services, new open space, as well as um, other, other types of uses. The Essex Crossing Redevelopment Project is one that many people I talked to cited as a great example of gentrification done right. It also ended up pushing David deeper into affordable housing. And I found my way... Um, uh, after the Bloomberg administration and, and into the de Blasio administration, uh, working at the Department of Housing Preservation and Development, I was lucky enough to connect with then Commissioner Vicki Bean, um, who's now the deputy mayor in New York for housing and economic development. And um, I became her chief of staff and deputy commissioner for strategy and communications and, um, and just really worked on all aspects of the city's affordable housing plan and, and helped to develop the 10-year housing plan to build and create what was originally 2,000 and now 300,000 units of housing um, for um, across all neighborhoods of the city. 
after spending much of his career acting as a bridge between governmental agencies and the real estate industry, David has come to a rather optimistic view of capitalism's role in our affordable housing. There's bad actors everywhere, but there's also a lot of good actors out there who are you know, abiding by their regulatory agreements and ensuring that folks aren't being displaced, but you're actually investing in these properties. To me, I think that's you know, maybe the only way really to, to solve this. I don't, I don't know, I don't know how, when we get to a point of solving it, right? The, the sort of deferred maintenance has only gotten worse and worse, um, even with more concerted efforts to improve public housing. Um, so, I mean, other than some huge, you know, effective like HUD stimulus that would be dedicated to all the deferred maintenance that just has not happened over decades and decades, I wish that were realistic, and maybe it could be at some point. But, you know, without that, I, I think you, you need the, the, the private investment in those kinds of properties in order to sustain it. Um, and you have to have that public-private partnership in order to make it to make it work. Nowadays, any large urban development will likely be slapped with the label of gentrification. Rather than fighting the local communities over whether or not a development is gentrification, or what gentrification even means, David thinks the better strategy is to help people understand that their neighborhood will evolve. It's just a question of how. A lot of communities are not satisfied with what's been built, even when you know, even a 100% affordable housing project can often be seen as gentrifying because it's new development and not seen for people who live in the neighborhood. And I think um, whether that's real or whether that's perceived, when it's perceived, it's real, right? And so, so I, I think that like grappling with those kinds of issues, because um, I am a believer that that development and change is just is is going to happen, and you know it can happen in different ways, and you know, and cities evolve and neighborhoods evolve, but. Of course, you, you want to evolve in a way that satisfies as many people as possible. One of the main complaints about development, even affordable development, is that it can often have the unintended consequence of displacing longtime residents. But new development doesn't always mean displacement, according to David. I think for folks who, um, you know, don't want any new building because they feel like you know, they like their neighborhood the way it is and they don't want to see change, uh, whether it be it affordable housing or otherwise. Again, I think um, a little bit of myth busting because I, I think while, while I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there that says new development means gentrification, which means displacement, there's a difference between the, you know, the correlation um, and the cause and causality, right? Not to get overly technical or analytical, but um, there, there really is not evidence out there that says that, you know, building new affordable housing in a neighborhood causes displacement. Um, I think, I think there's plenty of folks out there who, would, who might argue against me. And um, there's lots of different studies that have been done based on different types of data. You know, I, I don't know if any of them are perfect, but um, you know, I think, they're, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure how to, you know, get people to, again, to accept the fact that, you know, that, you know, if someone doesn't want more density, but I think, you know, with more density comes more, you know, more services and more taxes and hopefully more, you know, more opportunities to whether it be gaining access to fresh food or more opportunities for, you know, other, other types of uses to come into a neighborhood to make it a more enjoyable place to, to live. People in real estate are constantly thinking about ways to make a property more valuable. 
Since the market for a property is reflective of the market of the neighborhood it sits in, property values automatically appreciate when neighborhoods develop. The right kind of development for property value is also the right kind of development for a strong local economy, and often means a healthy mix of zoning, of property types, and of income levels. There's been many studies done over many years about the correlation between health and housing. Um, not, you know, not only you know, the type of housing you're in, but also what you actually have access to, be that a particular, you know, uh, a particular, uh, some sort of support within your own building or access to fresh food or access to transit so you can find, you know, access your networks or, or go to or find jobs uh, and all of those things, right? They're all intertwined. I mean, that's what makes it, I mean, you know, I'm an, I'm an urban planner and as a planner, what makes it so, you know, what, what makes housing and affordable housing in particular, as well as public housing, to sort of think about it and think about the future of it, is about what it means for individuals who live in these buildings, but also what it means for the neighborhoods um, and, and how our neighborhoods, you know, to me, a key part of every neighborhood is having a mix, a mix of incomes, um, right? You don't want to, you, you don't want to concentrate poverty um, and you don't want to have I mean, from, from my personal perspective and from a planning perspective, and you don't want to have, you know, you don't want to have gated communities or effective gated communities. So you, you really want to have that mix, mix of incomes, mix of people, mix of races, all those things that make, I think, you know, urban neighborhoods, exciting neighborhoods to be living in and working in. If you are in real estate, then you are in the business of urban planning. The decisions that property companies make can fundamentally change the character of a place, for better or worse. Understanding what is best for a neighborhood is complicated. It requires listening to stakeholders, analyzing data, and doing thorough first-hand due diligence, which, by the way, are all exactly what people in the property industry do every day. I would like to take a minute to thank the sponsor for this series, MRI Software. One of the things I learned researching affordable housing is that to operate at a high level, or to even operate at all really, you have to be very efficient. MRI has software designed to help managers of public and affordable housing be more efficient, more sustainable, and more profitable. They have been trusted for years by all types of real estate companies to help them expand their capacity and maximize the value of their portfolios. Check out what they can do for you at mrisoftware.com.